Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Hello and welcome to Mythmakers. Now this week's episode is a bit different because we're actually responding to a listener's question, but more about that in a moment. Uh, My name is Julia Golding and I'm the director of the Oxford Centre for Fantasy and also a full-time writer. I sort of juggle the two roles. And today I am joined by a friend of uh, the Oxford Centre, that is Jacob Renneker. Now, Jacob is well known to us as a Tolkien scholar, but he also has had a, a little job shift uh, since we last spoke. So perhaps, Jacob, you'd like to introduce in brief your new role, because it's very fascinating yes. from a fantasy viewpoint. <laughs> yeah, so I'm uh, so I'm working for uh, Ravensburger uh, that does uh, publishing in uh, children's books, uh, games, uh, puzzles, uh, and whatnot. So, and, and a lot of what they deal with, uh, if you've seen the uh, Villainous uh, board game, they have like Disney Villainous, um, Marvel Villainous, uh, and forthcoming Star Wars Villainous. They have some games. They have a forthcoming actual Lord of the Rings uh, puzzle book game that is tremendous. Uh, there's some serious care that's been put into uh, making this. So, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. I think I think it's been announced publicly. If not, hopefully they're not listening. But there's something <laughs> for this particular group to to, to look forward to uh, coming to uh, stores near you sometime in, within sometime within the next year. Yeah, that, actually, that suggests that suggests another theme for us one day, which is about these crossover products. Because of course, it's mm-hmm. famous that Star Wars, for example, made a fortune from its uh, its toy version. You know. The, so this sort of world where it comes out of a film or a book or whatever and becomes like a whole world and cosplay and all the rest of it is is fascinating. Anyway, <clears throat> so what was the question we were asked and why have I brought Jacob back? Well, we got this rather cryptic uh, message from a reader saying, um, what about the stone giants in The Hobbit? They're really wild. And I thought about that for a moment. I thought, yes, you are absolutely right. What about the stone giants? So um, if you haven't read The Hobbit for a while, they don't really impinge on the story very much. There is a sequence in the Peter Jackson film, which goes on for quite quite some time with the um, sort of mountain rock people taking shape and then throwing stones at each other and the Hobbit and the dwarves are all sort of at risk. But actually. Where do they come from? Um, I went back to the book just to check, and it literally says, "Oh, 
watch out, there are the stone giants, they're bad news, um, they're throwing rocks. No sort of sense of where their backstory is. So, Jacob, do you have a theory where the stone giants actually come from? Yeah, that's that's funny. So I did, I did some after, thank you, uh, dear listener, who, who, whomever you are, um, for that, that question. So that got me poking around. And uh, yeah, so with the Hobbit, it's interesting, like you said, that the only kind of mentioned there is kind of a backdrop, right? That, uh, and, and it, that they're mentioned in kind of the same breath as uh, this you know, really evocative imagery of two storms clashing. Uh, and so they kind of seem to be almost equated, uh, synonymous with these kind of elemental, you know, grand, uh, almost cosmic forces, um, or, you know, world bound cosmic forces. Um, and they, yeah, they, they, they don't, they don't appear again. There's other in, in the Hobbit itself, there's a few other passing references to giants that aren't stone giants, right? So this, this kind of, you know, the descriptor of stone in stone giants just, you know, only appears here. Um, and I think I, I can't, I, I, I couldn't find anywhere else in legendarium where stone giants were singled out, but giants here in, in within the Hobbit itself, um, you have, uh, you know, passing references to uh, giants like, you know, um, uh, Bilbo wonders if this giant boulder that he sees in a stream was maybe thrown there by a giant at some point, mm -hmm. uh, but nothing is, is kind of fleshed out there. And, um, uh, Blood Orthon says that he'd like to find a more or less decent giant. So there's kind of a moral dimension. You know, there's decent versus indecent, I guess, <laughs> giants. Um, but largely these, these stone giants kind of seem indifferent, right? They're so massive in scale. They're they're not concerned with, you know, they, they don't seem to notice Bilbo and company. And even if they did, who knows if they would care about these little, you know, kind of minuscule uh, creatures. So it's so you do i know and then this is and we can go into this perhaps uh, a little bit later i'll wait for you read on this in, in in lord of the rings the idea of giants and how that kind of develops over the development of lord of the rings specifically as a story but it within within the world of the hobbit it's this is kind of a <laughs> almost a flash in the pan you just kind of see this as a backdrop for for this kind of adventure setting um with like you said that they don't play a significant role in the story the development of the story rather than to provide some sort of larger yeah backdrop for the adventure against which the adventure is happening yeah i mean they have the plot point of driving the the hobbit and the dwarves underground i mean that's right. that's what the purpose they serve is uh, right. to escape from the elemental creatures they then get tangled up with the the, the goblins so you can see you know, you need an excite, exciting turn in the journey to drive the uh, the dwarves somewhere that they don't want to go. But I suppose there's also an association here, as you mentioned, with the storms of the elements. And it made me sort of connect it with the later iteration of a sort of sentient mountain. Because um, in the Lord of the Rings, they have, or in the Fellowship of the Ring, they have the passage up Cadras, which is abortive because of the attack of the weather, which seems like a, a return in snow <laughs> to the idea that somehow the elements can, in a neutral, not exactly neutral, but in a way that isn't involved in the, the battles of elves and men, can turn against um, travellers. And there seems to be some sort of correspondence there. 
yeah, but I think just point. looking at their presence in The Hobbit, I mean, The Hobbit is a less tidy book in terms of the Legendarium than The Lord of the Rings. So, for example, there is like the random reference to, um, is it Smaug dying like a, a screech of a steam train? You know, there is the, it has a more storytelling awareness of our world element to it. Uh, and it has a more nursery feel. So it could be that there are elements that are just chucked into it to excite the reader, which don't have so much of a backstory. But I, I am I do remember reading that Tolkien thought he only had one reference in all of it, which he hadn't actually sort of plugged in properly. And that was the the reference about the queen and her cats that comes in Lord of, the, Lord of the Rings somewhere. I think Aragorn mentions a, a past queen. Mm. And no doubt Tolkien went back and, you know, worked out what that meant. But I seem to remember him saying that was the only thing that wasn't connected. So maybe there are connections with the giants that we are missing. So let's dig a little bit more. So let's think about the giant, that figure in um, sort of world myth. Before we come back to... Uh, Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis and people. So thinking back to the sources of giants, I came up with two main sources which I felt influenced Tolkien and also C.S. Lewis, and that was the Greek version and the Viking version. I don't know, which one do you feel you want to address first? Have at one of them. Um, maybe, so I, yeah, so do uh, e either one. I went on a kind of deep, dive into Norse <laughs> okay let's earlier Norse, just kind of went down the Norse the Norse the Norse rabbit hole but the Greek you know the Greek 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 is easy is uh, I think uh, there are there are a lot of similarities right uh between Greek and Norse uh mythology in terms of giants and kind of the primordial nature right so um do you want so Greek I think Greek could be less would probably take a little less time do you want to do Greek first let's do Greek let's go Greek Greek okay Cute, yeah, cute so, right, so, yeah. <laughs> so right, so you have the 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 Greek giants are children of uh, Gaia and Uranus. Um, and depending on which, you know, which kind of founding mythology you're reading, they're either coming from when uh Uranus was castrated, right? Uh, they kind of bubble up from the blood uh from um from Uranus from that, or they're natural born to Uranus and, and Gaia, depending. So, you know, some of the, the most massive, largest elemental figures, they're there, you know, even side by side with uh, the gods, or in some cases, you know, uh, seem to be in a, a grander scale in some sense, but they're largely, right, strong, aggressive, um, and you have ultimately a kind of battle for power between the Olympian gods uh, the Gigantomachy, um, which, right, the, the, this, this massive battle between the Olympians and the Giants, and the Olympians end up winning. And there's so sometimes... Are the, are the Giants the same as Titans? No, this is a different... No? Yeah, so okay, let's because, clear that one out giants, of Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Giants... So these Giants um, in... Right, and in, in Greek literature, broadly speaking, and this is you know terribly reductive, um, but giants can be large, but also they don't have to be. So some people that are referenced as giants 
aren't necessarily giant size-wise, uh, and in some instances appear to be, you know, kind of like mythical, kind of like half like some sort of divine uh, mythical creatures, but not necessarily, you know, like 40 feet, 50 feet tall. They could be smaller. So, but that's in, in, in kind of like the later literature and how they're dealing with quote giants. So I think typically I think of like the uh, cy- like Cyclops and say like the Odyssey as that's kind of what I picture as, as kind of being a giant. Um, but they're of course like slightly separate related, but I think slightly separate stream. It just all, it all gets mud- muddled and muddied uh, when you're looking at all the literature together as a whole, right? Because each of these authors is kind of taking a different piece of this and running with it. So yeah, so l- largely though, I think when, when you're talking about the earlier giants, the earliest giants um, that are battling the Olympians and shortly thereafter, they're just kind of like brutes uh, and almost seem to carry this kind of symbolic weight of chaos, right? So the Olympians are these gods that are bringing in, you know, reason, rationale, order to chaos, um, you know, disorder, barbarism, right? And so that's kind of how sometimes it's used with later authors referring to this story of the Olympian gods versus the giants is kind of, in essence, representing this greater idea of civilization versus barbarism. Or um, Plato even references uh, this as, uh, you know, the, the giants kind of representing base materialism or like materialistic ways of looking at the universe. Whereas Plato, of course, is the correct way of looking at it, which is more abstract, right? Looking at some sort of transcendent realm and that's where the greek gods are representing so in at least in 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 greek literature it's kind of the idea the images are kind of abstracted and kind of taken to symbolize a battle between order versus chaos civilization barbarism reason rationale and just kind of you know base materialism uh, in some so that's kind of the greek largely kind of why i see when i read it so and obviously um the inkling authors or raised on greek stories uh in in the sco- in the schooling system of the day um and i think one of the carry forwards there which i can see is the sense of um them not being the the sharpest of creatures uh and i think that's particularly um you can see that in c.s lewis's giants uh, he has a number of giants some of whom are more benign than others but that seems to me that he may be drawing on uh, more of a Greek tradition. So let's do the Norse where I suspect uh, I can imagine Tolkien's fingerprints are, are slightly more visible. Right. Uh, I, I do remember that from um, from the very foundational myths of Norse mythology, uh, the, the physical world is made from the body of a giant. Right. So it, it is yeah, definitely yeah. So mid, yeah, that's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mid, that, yeah, that Midgard... Mm. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which you have these overlaps, really interesting uh, parallels in uh, Mesopotamian uh, mythology with the creation, with the Babylonian specifically um, creation myth. Um, but in 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 Norse, um, you have right. So yeah, Ymir, Ymir. Um, please, somebody's going to. I, I daren't. I'm, apologies <laughs> to those who can apologies pronounce to any, yeah. anyone who does to everyone who does uh, Norse um, in any of its. 
uh, incarnations. Um, but right, so the, this kind of primeval giant is the first being that actually exists in in the world, right? That's uh, that's kind of formed from drops of water when the ice uh, of right Niflheim meets the heat of Muspelheim. So you have again, apologies for pronunciation, um, but right, so it's kind of in the middle of the you know extra hot, extra cold in the middle where that meets. Um, the watery area, this giant kind of just develops out of. So, and then from his person uh, or its person kind of develops, uh, kind of grows other giants. So that's what you have that happening. And kind of at the same time, uh, elsewhere, meanwhile, uh, you have the original gods being created as well. So they're kind of two different tracks of, uh, of kind of origins uh, for the gods like Odin, et cetera, we would think of more tr traditional gods, uh, Thor, et cetera. And then the giants that are kind of born directly from the body of this initial being that is the first uh, to exist in this in this world. Um, so, yes, and they, they, have, they, have a, uh, they battle it out, don't they? Uh, those gods and the giants. Right, um, right. Well, they, yes, they're battling it out. And they, the, the gods that are the more kind of like human-like gods, um, uh, end up, you know, slaying this primeval giant and his blood drowns all of the other giants, except for one family that survives on a little, little boat um, and uh, then, you know, survives. And it's the the fashioning, the gods um, fashion the world from this, you know, deceased god's body and set up uh, from the, the brow of this, uh, this primeval god, Midgard, right, which literally is Middle Earth, uh, and it is meant to protect in some ways the inhabitants of Midgard from these giants who they're trying to push off to the periphery. Okay, so, so we've got a wide range of giants there, and just thinking about the sort of trickle down effect when we look into the sort of world of medieval stories, another fascination for Tolkien and Lewis in particular, um, you get versions of these giants in new forms coming forward um and i think the one that obviously we know is a direct influence is gawain in the green knight the green knight is a giant but he is a giant in the sense of the stature of one of the greek ones he's not that huge but he's not he's not dim uh he's elemental he's clever he's uh, a force of nature um, his magic, his scheming. Um, so he's an absolutely fascinating figure, I think, as a sort of interpretation of the giant as the other that threatens the world of the court and the night um, civilization. But he's offering a different kind of civilization uh, in his green chapel. Um, so I think that's a that's a really fascinating giant and probably my favorite of all the giants because he seems to have so many aspects to him. Yeah, agreed. No, that's, and then, yeah, the going in the green Knight is, yeah, it's a fascinating story in and of itself. Right. And, uh, and when we know, yeah, we know of course that, you know, Tolkien specifically, there's, there's actually a, a letter uh, of Tolkien that's up for uh, auction right now for anybody who's it's, it's currently it's, it's there. You can get it right now. Uh, it's at over six, uh, 6,000 us dollars uh, right now. Um, but uh, it's a letter to a fan uh, who's writing about Lord of the Rings hadn't quite finished reading it, but what they had read 
uh, had impressed them so much. They wrote a letter, Tolkien wrote a letter back. Uh, and he says that he's right talking about the creation of uh, Middle Earth. And he says, right, na naturally in digested form, I am indebted to the myths and legends of literature, but most especially to those of England and Wales uh, for Gaelic of Ireland and Scotland, I have a great liking. So I think, yeah, so definitely looking at Gawain and the Green Knight, there's, there's a special place in Tolkien's heart for this kind of you know, Celtic Gaelic um, version of, of giants as it come there. And I think that's a valuable insight into, and especially the, the right, do we have the green, uh, the green knight and some parallel, some interesting connections to giants and ants uh, in uh, Lord of the Rings. So, so hold, anyway, hold, hold the thought about ents, because you made a very interesting point about the actual meaning of the word ent. Um, we need to properly recognise um, the Mabinogian and the Irish legends. Uh, again, Giant's Causeway, that's, uh, in, for those of you who aren't familiar with the, um, the sort of geography of Northern Ireland, there's a fantastic world heritage site called the Giant's Causeway, which is created by um, cooling basalt from a an ancient volcano. And it's called the Giant's Causeway because it looks as though it's been made by a creature, a giant. Um, and it links up ge ge geologically to Fingal's Cave over in, in Scotland. So there, there's a huge presence of giants in the landscape that is um, all over England, Scotland, Wales, uh, Ireland, um, and giants cut into chalk surfaces, um, you know, everywhere. And, and um, any large structure is often named after a giant or a hero who is treated like a giant. Um, so heroic people of that stature. So there's a very rich tradition there. And all of these masses of uh, influences are all going into what Tolkien called the cauldron of story and being stirred around. So let's look at the specific mention of Ent, because this word isn't actually Tolkien's word, is it? No, <laughs> no, it's right, it's Old English, uh, often translated as, as giant itself. So Ent and giant uh, in Old English uh, are appear to be synonymous or have a close affinity to, to each other. Um, so yeah, so it, it's really interesting looking at how you know the development of Lord of the Rings, the different drafts that in early drafts you have references to giants, um, not frequently, right? So it seems that after the Hobbit, as he's putting together Lord of the Rings, you still have some references to giants, but upon successive revisions, they kind of get weeded out. Um, and even Treebeard himself, right? So this idea of Ents, Treebeard in earlier drafts is described more or less like a giant who's kind of dressed in green or wearing, you know, mail that looks like leaves and he has a beard, you know, uh, like branches, but, um, and then is described as having his own court uh, with, you know, some sort of courtly retinue, right? Um, who stand tall, who stand like, young trees. So again, this is this saying that they're standing like them, not so there's some ambiguity there. Are they actually trees? But then as it kind of develops, it seems like Tolkien is taking, you know, what was happening in, in uh, what he was doing with the idea of giants, this kind of, you know, generic uh, idea of giants as these large oafish creatures that you really get a better sense for in the Farmer Giles of Ham, 
the mm. the giant there for Tolkien is kind of this explicit, you know, <laughs> just dumb brute uh, who's deaf and partially blind and just kind of bumbling um, to then, and these passing references in Hobbit that seem to be connecting it to this wider world of children's, you know, stories about giants and knights battling giants and that sort of thing. He then kind of takes that and, and it seems like he's trying to make it his own, giving his own personal kind of internally consistent idea of idea of giants. And it seems, at least in my my reading of of kind of all this, you know, preparatory material and and multiple drafts, that he's kind of taking this idea of gi of giants and developing that within the legendarium into ants in some way. What one aspect of giants kind of becomes evolves into uh, into ants. Um, okay, so, so here's a theory. Here's a theory, Jacob. Yeah. Um, if in The Hobbit we've got um, stone giants, hyphenated stone giants, yeah. maybe what we've got in Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, is wood giants. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you can imagine there's a sense of he's working through the elements here. Yeah. It, it's a very elemental landscape that we're moving in. Um, so right. perhaps yeah. That yeah. Is, that's where we're going here. Um, with it you could yeah because because you do have in you know um uh book of lost tales there's references to uh, you know melko uh breeding giants in the earth along with other monsters with the wicked dwarves ogres um but that doesn't really kind of he doesn't follow that trajectory it seems so we have giants mentioned in some of the earlier material but it, it doesn't. It doesn't seem to survive as he's kind of working and reworking it. That he really seems fascinated with, like you're saying, that that kind of dimension of giants, the elemental giants that are, you know, kind of the green, the wood, uh, and follows those and develops that. Because he he says, you know, that he doesn't remember creating Treebeard, and so this is something that kind of seems to be happening, kind of organic, organically, for lack of a better yeah. term, right? Growing uh, from a seed. <laughs> Right, 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 right. But but it's but he he didn't see Tolkien didn't see himself as kind of like from whole cloth kind of creating consciously this this entity that is Treebeard as an ent. But then it kind of just kind of grows uh, into into this idea, which is yeah, which which I find fascinating because it it is so directly tied to the landscape itself, right? That mm -hmm. Tolkien was so particular about, and he writes, you know, so movingly about uh, just in describing, he, he obviously cared about, right, trees, landscape, the world, and the Ents kind of become this vehicle for personifying, giving a voice to the land, right? Um, to nature. Uh, and that's, yeah, it, it kind of grows and then it becomes something that's distinct that we see, like you are mentioning with Sir uh, Gawain and the Green Knight, that we see the Green Knight kind of having a tie to the green, right? The elements uh, of wood kind of in, in particular. And so this is, I think him perhaps, you know, Tolkien leaning a bit, being drawn, drawing a bit from that, but then kind of amplifying it a hundredfold uh, in his own, in his own, the Petri dish that is, uh, you know, Middle Earth and the, the broader, right, legendarium. I'm getting a bit carried away with my theory here, but I've got another one to offer you. Okay, keep going, is, keep going. I love it. Yeah. So we've got stone giants and wood giants. Um, the Balrog is arguably a fire giant because it's described as a sort of spirit of flame, isn't it? Um, right, yeah. Of, yeah, it's one of those sort of That's elemental good. monsters created 
by the original um, Melkor, Dark Lord, um, the pre the the super baddie. So where we've got that that's earth, um, fire and uh, wood. We're doing quite well on our elements here. Right, you can there throw in the eagles little... if you want to do e you want to do eagles. You can you can go ahead and do that if you want for okay. uh, for a loose, <laughs> looser connection too, right? So the air, right, that they're um, right in their manways, you know, kind of the specific, you know, affinity for for manway who's largely in charge of right the, the kind of the, the realm of air. Um, so I think that I think that works. I think you're onto something. That's that's the next academic article. Um, right. Not that I write those anymore. <laughs> So I think what's really interesting is that in some ways, another argument here is that everything but hobbits are giants in Lord mm. of the Rings because our perspective, our point of view is of the small. So it means actually that the way it's positioned is that um, the, we are going out into a big, bigger world a world that doesn't care or understand the halfling, the hobbit. So even the men that we meet are a bit like giants to the um, the hobbits. I mean, you see that obviously in the film with all the discussion about how they did the false perspective and the, the doubling to make this clear. But you've got the sort of oafish giant people in Brie, and then you've got the sort of... Uh, regal giants of the sort of Gondor people and people of stature and the elves. So you could say that there's this theme of perspective that runs all the way through Lord of the Rings, which reminds me very much of another literary antecedent, um, which is perhaps one of the first to make real use of this perspective. And that's, of course, Gulliver's Travels, which mm. has the two worlds where Gulliver in one place is a tiny and in another place, he's the giant. So it feels a bit like that to me that Tolkien's very aware of just how big or small you are in a fantasy world, because that's really yeah. the heart of yeah. being a giant, isn't it? Right. Yeah. 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 You do. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then you have yeah, and you have nuance added kind of to that, or kind of taken in different directions. And I think, and, and that's where, yeah, the, the giants kind of being used as metaphor. Uh, you see that. In in some ways, in I think here in in, in Lord of the Rings, definitely, uh, but also in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia um, and some of uh, C.S. Lewis's other writings, where the idea of giant as as metaphor for something different, and even into sometimes contemporary literature, uh, which we can talk about shortly. Yeah, let, let's turn to um, uh, Narnia. So, just on, off the top of my head, I could think of there may be more. I could think of three giants. Um, there's the first one that we meet in Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, who is turned to stone previously. Um, and his giant Rumble Buffin, quite right. a cozy name. And he's the <laughs> one who borrows the handkerchief to mop his brow. Uh, that's all. And he's obviously a, in the tradition of gentle but bit dim giants. Um, then the next one I could think of was the one who stands as a marshal in the fight between Peter and Miraz. Um, and he is Wimblefeather, who seems a close cousin or ancestor, uh, descendant of the one from uh, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And then the most interesting giants and the ones that 
connect most to the stone giants of the Hobbit are the ones that pop up in the silver chair. Um, there's a lot of uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight in this as well, with the wintry setting and the Christmas feast and all of this. But there is, when they're first introduced, they are behaving very much like the um, giants from The Hobbit because um, we actually get the giants throwing stones. Um, and uh, Jill, who's called Scrub, uh, says, are they aiming at us? No, said no, said Puddleglum. We'd be a good deal safer if if they were. <laughs> right. So um, these giants terrible shots, terrible aim, terrible shots, um, duffers in the sporting world of Narnia. But then, of course, the children then go into the castle where they're treated as. Uh, guess, but it turns out a bit like a Jack in the Beanstalk um, sort of scenario, very much that kind of fairy tale feel where they realize that they are the the prime dish, not the not the guests for dinner. They are dinner. Um, so that world to me seems as though C.S. Lewis is drawing on fairy tale giants, really. Um, but the stupidity, the silliness comes from a sort of um, easily tricked element, comes from the sort of uh, the Cyclops type giant. So there's sort of a bit of Greek in there as well. Have I mentioned them all? Have I missed a giant? Thank you for listening to part one of this week's podcast. Come back next week to hear part two. Thank you for listening to Mythmakers. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide. Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course.
So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing.